Tom Kendrick is the author of Blue Water Gold Rush, The Odyssey of a California Sea Urchin Diver. The book came later, though. What the book describes is Tom's 18 years as a commercial sea urchin diver in California. Blue Water Gold Rush reveals a little bit of everything, natural history, behind the scenes, look at the camaraderie between folks in the industry, what it's like to make a living from the ocean, managing money, relationships, and responding to changes in the ecosystem and world economics. Tom, thanks for joining me in the studio. Nice to be here, Jenny. So can you give us a little bit of background first of just how did the sea urchin industry start? I know that it started in Japan, and I'm curious, how did they all of a sudden decide they wanted urchin roe, or is it just roe that they wanted? Or It's it's actually the, the gonads of the urchin, but we call it roe, yes. In, um, in the mid-60s, uh, one of the world's uh, foremost experts on kelp, uh, a fellow by the name of Wheeler J. North, down at Scripps Institute in Southern California, determined that sea urchins were destroying the kelp beds of California. So he started this urchin eradication program under the auspices of California Department of Fish and Game. Divers were sent down with hammers to kill the urchins. This is in the mid and late 60s. Now, just a couple of years later, a national fisheries marine biologist by the name of Susamu Kato, now this fellow knew that urchins were a prized item, a delicacy in Japan on the sushi menu called uni. And so he looked at these guys going down killing these urchins and he scratched his head and he said, now wait a minute, I wonder if we can start a fishery up here and, and export these uh, fresh uh, uni over to Japan. So in 1972, the experimental sea urchin fishery began in California. So it's kind of a neat um, opportunity to manage a f manage an ecosystem and also have an economic value as well. Well, it really went through a lot of changes. Back in those days, in the beginning, the urchins were considered a pest. Uh, the dive magazines were advertising for urchin divers. Uh, you can make... Uh, you know, seven, eight cents a pound. You can go out and make yourself a hundred dollars a day doing this. Uh, we need to clean out these these pests. So there's the encouragement to get out and and dive on these kelp beds, get these urchins, and then make a dime as well. You or bet. A pretty dime, as for what I understand. So how did you get involved in sea urchin diving yourself? Well, I grew up in Hawaii, and I had this natural love for the ocean and for surfing. Um, I was spent more time at the beach than I did at school. We moved to Santa Barbara in the mid-60s. I finished up my high school years, and I was uh, just a surfer there. I was um, living on a boat trying to get out to the Channel Islands to find the, the surf out there. I had heard there was surf out there, and this was in the mid-1970s. I was sleeping on my boat one morning. There was a knock on my cabin door. A uh, sea urchin dive boat skipper uh, needed a deckhand. His man didn't show up that day. So that day in the spring of 1978, I went out to San Miguel Island. I tended on that boat. I made $160. That was the beginning of my 22-year sea urchin career. So tending on the boat is, um, you're not actually diving, but you're kind of helping on boat. Right. Um, you're, you're the deckhand. You're handling the machinery, the dive hoses. You're hoisting the urchins up onto the boat. It's difficult work. Did you get any surf in that day? No, I didn't find any surf out there for a long time. But you found a job. I found a job. All right. I eventually found the surf. <laughs> so, and actually, in your times later with urchin diving, was there usually surf 
uh, trips combined with that after the You know, some diving? guys are able to do that, combine the surf with the diving. I was never able to do that. For me, it was either I'm going to make a work trip and go diving and make money, or I'm going to go surfing today and go play. Nice. Seems there are certain character requirements that you describe for one to be a member of the Sea Urchin Fleet. In your book, you talk a lot about some of the characters that you worked with, which are great stories. And you write about the citizens, in quote, and the non-citizens, in quotes. What's the criteria for being a citizen of the Sea Urchin Fleet? Oh, gee, I, <laughs> I think there's one part of the book where I said we're, we're comprised of a group of Drug addicts, alcoholics, thieves, murderers, liars, and parking violators. Other than that, we're great guys. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure ocean-loving people because it takes a lot of commitment to be on the water that much. You know, back in, back in the early days, if you, if you really look at how anything got started, the pioneers of any industry or the pioneers of countries, you take a look at the first citizens of the United States, of Australia, uh, the first uh, citizens of Las Vegas, the first, uh, the pioneers of any industry are a lot of times some uh, colorful characters. So are there any characters you'd like to share, um, any stories about, maybe one spirited character that you could re recall some good memories with? Well, I, I guess uh, I could talk, <laughs> there's so many of them. One of them uh, is a fellow named Crazy Harold, and Crazy Harold uh, was the guy who made all our air compressors. And so if we needed an air compressor system, we would go out to Crazy Harold's house. Now, Crazy Harold had a very foul mouth, a lot of four-letter words. He was very abusive when he spoke to you and uh, not really, uh, not, not a nice guy. He actually is a, a kind of a pussycat, but uh, he was very loud, obnoxious. But if you could tolerate the verbal abuse, you could always get a good deal from Crazy Harold. You can look through a lot of these characters, um, what they're, the way they relate as they're good divers and they get the, the urchins going. They're going to they're gonna be good people to have on your boat and as well as have fun with. One of the guys that, that early on in, in my, early in my career fell in by the name of Jerome Betts. His nickname was Romer. We all have nicknames. And Romer was uh, the guy uh, who kind of essentially trained me. I write about him in the book and... And uh, but he would always play tricks on me. He was a mischief maker. He was a trickster, and uh, so I could never tell if he was telling me the truth or lying to me. Early on, I didn't know where the islands. I didn't know the spots, and he tried to confuse me and lie to me. <laughs> and uh, so, but I eventually got him back. What are some of the tricks that and shenanigans that you you've experienced underwater or on top? Both uh, underwater. Uh, Jerome would do things like come up behind me and pull on your fin. And uh, just kind of gives you a minor heart attack. <laughs> uh, he would go up above me with a handful of rocks and release them and be raining rocks on top of my head. And uh, he would come up behind me. If you have a couple of hundred pounds of urchins in your bag, he'd sneak up and untie the knot in your bag. And so you lose oh. all your urchins and then he'd go get them. So all <laughs> kinds of little tricks. <laughs> so what's a typical diving day like? Uh, this is starting out in the Channel Islands, right? You're down in Santa Barbara. So what was a typical uh, or dive expedition like, N planning the weather and where you want to go and then getting out there and, and, and what happens when you actually get to the spot? Typical dive day is you've got, let's say you've got a two-man boat, a two-man two operation uh, with one tender. Uh, say you've got a 30-foot boat, you're going to cruise along about 15 knots maybe. So you're going to get a pretty early start. We would leave uh, while it was still dark, about 5.30 in the morning. Uh, we would have a uh, about a four-hour run a uh, long ways out to San Miguel Island, about 50 miles. So we get out there and uh, get anchored up and start suiting up. 
uh, say around 9 or 10 o'clock. Uh, a diver is going to spend between four and six hours underwater every day, uh, not all at one time, and dive for about an hour, hour and a half, uh, get up on the boat and take a break, and then make another jump. And so uh, we finish up our work day, uh, get underway, maybe four, five, six o'clock. On this particular boat I was on back in the late 70s, we'd uh, get back to Santa Barbara, get back to the harbor, maybe uh, nine, ten o'clock at night, get unloaded, clean up the boat, and uh, home by midnight. And is there somebody waiting on shore to, to uh, weigh your, your catches and, right. and take we them away? Would, uh, that's uh, his, his name, the, the, the dock master or the way master, a fellow named Wes Carpenter. And uh, so I actually write about Wes. He was a great guy and mentor to a lot of us, a lot of us young divers. So this was pre-cell phone days. So we would get on the ship-to-shore marine radio, call up the marine operator, and call to Wes's house and tell him uh, we're going to be in about 8 o'clock. We've got 8,000 pounds of urchins. So he'll call the trucks in Los Angeles, and trucks will be waiting for us when we hit the dock. I see. So where else was um, urchin diving taking place in the 70s? You're writing from the Channel Islands, but where other where are some other areas in the United States that urchin diving was taking place? Yeah, it got started uh, in Central California and in, in, uh, in, in Santa Barbara, Channel Islands. There were uh, eventually, by 1980, there was a fishery uh, working out of uh, San Diego. Uh, that was in the Channel Islands Harbor in Ventura. Uh, that was about it for California. A fishery got started in Maine in the early 1980s, uh, getting the green sea urchins. Uh, now, in the early 80s, in the mid-80s, uh, there was a lot of exploration taking place. Uh, we looked over Oregon, Alaska. Uh, fisheries got started up uh, all over the world in those days, in uh, Chile and Russia, Vancouver Island, Canada. And so it was in the early and mid-80s when the fishery really exploded. With all this happening all around the U.S., there's a lot of urchin potential. What was, how did that drive price economics with getting a price per pound? Or was that, did that drive the price, or was that more of the, the, the need it's for a, it? It's a typical supply and demand uh, type business. Uh, the 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 quality of the row at the Channel Islands is, is uh, very high quality, uh, only, second only to the Japanese product. So in the late 70s and the early 80s, Santa Barbara was king, and we uh, were making good money. Our price continued to climb. There was a lot of competition. We, we controlled the domestic market. There was, there was no other urchins being harvested in the United States. So Santa Barbara was king. Uh, oh. We were making a lot of money. We were buying houses, new cars, uh, new trucks. When we came up to the North Coast in the mid-1980s, it was the same thing all over again. We had this, this new uh, virgin territory up here, and we harvested a lot of virgins here in Northern California. Now, also at the same time as when the other fisheries got started around the world, created a lot of competition, making it a lot tougher on us. Mm-hmm. What made the product so supreme in Santa Barbara? Uh, well, the, the sea urchin row is, is um, y what, you, what you're really looking for is bright yellow, a firm uh, piece of row about the size of your thumb. There's a, there's a huge uh, amount of uh, kelp beds in mm -hmm. the Channel Islands. The urchins are well fed. They have a lot of natural nutrients in that area of the coast. And so that's kind of what makes them a superior product. You were saying earlier there was this management scheme there. Eventually, earlier, before they knew it was going to be an economically valuable practice, they were going to go out and get rid of these urchins. What was the 
ecological um, scene at the time of why were there so many urchins? How come there wasn't a real Well, balance? of course, the natural predator for the sea urchin is the sea otter. Mm -hmm. The otters, as we know, were hunted to near extinction by the turn of the century. So by the time guys like me came along, the urchins on the coast of California had almost 100 years of uninhibited growth. There uh. were carpets and carpets of urchins out there. And our job was to clean out the kelp beds to save the kelp forests. Because the kelp provides habitat for so many other animals, right? That's right. Now, interestingly enough, it, it kind of, you know, through the course of my uh, career in Santa Barbara, uh, we started out with only maybe 100 divers in the state. Well, by 1986, there were nearly 1,000 divers wow. uh, harvesting the urchins. And so it kind of went the other way. There was no size limits. There were no regulations. We were taking huge quantities of urchins. And uh, so there was uh, problems of, of overfishing uh, were taking place. So that brings up a good point. You're right in the book about um, regulations, and then they come. And what was the reaction from oh, the spoiled. community? Well, it was it was interesting because uh, there was, I mean, even up here in, in Fort Bragg in Noyo, uh, one of the fish and game biologists, a guy named Pete Calvus, was uh, calling for an emergency five-year moratorium on urchin harvesting. So it was a really volatile subject. And the urchin divers, we were up in arms because we're out there trying to make a living on these things. But I could see, even guys like me could see, that uh, we would go into an area... Uh, kelp bed and harvest 95% of the urchins. We take them all. Mm -hmm. And they take a while to come back. Mm -hmm. um, so what happened was, and there was all these rumors of regulations, oh, we're going to be shut down. We're not going to be able to uh, provide for our families. So we had regulations imposed on us right around uh, 1986. We had a size limit. Urchins could no longer be taken less than uh, three and a half inch shell diameter uh, on the north coast. Uh, we had uh, we our harvesting days were cut back to seasons, and so then there was also a moratorium put on the number of divers we could have. The number of divers began to we had a target number of three hundred. We had to get down to. Mm. So a lot of us were up in arms about it. It did hurt us financially to the tune of about thirty percent of our income for the mm. first couple of years. As I look back on it, it was the greatest thing that we could have done. The size limits alone created what we have now is a, is a sustainable sea urchin fishery. Mm -hmm. And probably some of those um, regulations were a benefit to the families that were wanting their partners back on land every once in a while. That's right. We had, <laughs> well, I, before uh, my, my schedule, everything was dependent on the weather. Right. On the weather and, and the market. And then we came along where we could only work uh, four days a week. And of course, that made my wife happy. Yeah. So how did actually, you, you said there was a limit of 300 on the fleet. How did they call down to that? What number? happened was there was there was like 960 divers in the state, so the fish and game said we have to somehow get this number down to 300. So there was a um, uh, a lottery system put in place uh, that every for every 10 divers who got out of the fishery, let their permits go, one permit would be released by lottery. Hmm. Now it took about uh, 12 years to get the number down to 300, but that's about where it is now. Did you have any of your, your uh, buddies lose lose out on this process, or the people that you worked with, did they stay in? or? Uh, a lot of guys have stayed in. You know, you get, to, and you get to be about 40, 45 years old, and it's hard to change careers. And so now what we have is an average age of sea urchin divers is now in the late 40s. Wow. A lot of my friends are still doing it. 
Uh, so we've got interesting times ahead in the sea urchin fishery because guys are getting out and hanging on to their permits and still trying to scratch out a living. Uh, so it's interesting times ahead. Interesting. So when did you get your own boat? You worked on a couple other boats when you got started and really got a feel for the how to how to do this and what you would need to do if you invested more money. So what what brought you to finally buy your own boat? Well, I needed to get some I needed to do some surfing. The guys that I was <laughs> the guys that I was uh, diving with and working with, they weren't surfers. And uh, it would kind of it would kill me to be out there uh, eating my sandwich, taking a lunch break, uh, and and 400 yards away there's these beautiful waves and guys surfing on them. So that was really the prime motivator for me was I wanted to have a rack on my boat and I could carry my surfboard, and if I had a few bucks in the bank, I could go surfing. Now you stuck to California waters only. Because I know, what about Mexico? Did you ever go down to Mexico, or were you allowed to fish in Mexico? Well, we're, we weren't allowed to. Uh, we, uh, Me and a, a buddy of mine uh, tried to get a little something going down there in northern Baja, and uh, we had a great time. It was a fun experience. We failed miserably, uh, but there is now a healthy uh, uh, fishery in, in Baja. By Mexican yes. divers yes. and mm-hmm. regulated by Mexico, too, yes. right? Excellent. Well, uh, I just wanted to take a short break in just a few moments here and let listeners know that they are hearing from a former sea urchin diver, Tom Kendrick, and we're talking about his experience as a commercial sea urchin diver. And you're listening to Ocean Currents on KWMR. Please stay tuned. I'm talking with Tom Kendrick, the author of Blue Water Gold Rush and a former commercial sea urchin diver and avid surfer still to this day, right? Yes. (laughs) So, Tom, tell us just a little bit about something about sea urchins in general. It's their natural history. They're an echinoderm. They're related to sea stars. But can you tell us a little bit more about them? Um, Urchins, as it turns out, are like 400 million years old. They're, they predate most animal species on the planet. They're found in oceans, waters, all over the world. Uh, one of the really interesting things I found out in, in my book research was the urchins that we were harvesting, say, at the Channel Islands. And now, we thought that, uh, that the urchins, we'd harvest them, they would have babies, and they would grow there. Well, as it turns out, uh, some, that happens with some of them, but with many of them, they're spawned maybe a thousand miles away, up in up in Canada, and they drift in the currents in the California Current, and they eddy around in in the ocean, and they settle there. And the urchins that are spawned in the Channel Islands could uh, settle out and become babies a thousand miles south. Wow, that's interesting. That makes a lot of sense oceanographically because mm-hmm. Point Conception is a big break point for the mm-hmm. California Current, and then. That's why the Channel Islands are such an incredible area because they have these swirling currents and incredible settlement areas for life drifting in the current. We were so spoiled diving the Channel Islands. That's where my diving career began. I dove the Channel Islands for nine years. When we did the North Coast migration in 1987, came up here, it was just a complete different ball game. We're diving in this, uh, you know, dirty water, poor visibility, cold, miserable, you know, it's just the Channel Islands are such a unique area on the coast. When you say dirty, you mean plankton rich? Well, <laughs> well, you could say plankton rich, but you could also say muddy because uh, we have a lot of runoff on the, in, in the coastal areas up here after rain. And you have a lot of river uh, river outlets too, so uh-huh. you, so there's a lot of brown water right up from here. the Russian River yeah. and and north. Mm-hmm. 
So what actually brought you to move up north to Mendocino? You really had a great thing going in the Channel Islands. What was going on that really made you and a few others decide to check out Mendocino? Right. By the mid-80s, the uh, fishery had really grown to, like I said, almost a 1,000 divers. And uh, the Channel Islands were really over-harvested. We had a lot of uh, divers out there taking the urchins with no rules, no regulations. So the resource, number one, had been depleted. Then on top of that, we had a couple of back-to-back El Nino years. The kelp, uh, by 1986 and 87, was essentially gone. So the urchins weren't eating good. They were poor quality. Now, a few guys came up here and uh, discovered these vast virgin reef areas of Sonoma and Mendocino counties. I came up in the second wave in uh, 1987, started harvesting pointerina. Even though the water was uh, cold and, and, you know, dirtier than what we were used to diving in, poor visibility, uh, there was just carpets and carpets, what we would call virgin reef. Mm-hmm. How did you know that pointerina would be a good destination? Were there people scoping it out? A couple of guys came up and scoped it out. Uh, they just had a brand new uh, pier put in. The pier was knocked out in the in the storms of uh, 82 and 83 and so there was a brand new pier there which was which was nice we had uh, uh, un- unloading facilities there mm-hmm. the waters are definitely a little bit creepier up here with the poor visibility did you have um, encounters with some of the predators that seem to be in high abundance here white sharks Mr. GW, as you refer to in the book? In all my years of diving, uh, you know, we have a lot of stories, a lot of encounters with a lot of crazy things. Uh, I never saw anything like that until uh, I started diving the Farallons, the Farallon Islands in uh, about 1988. And that's, uh, of course, a well-known breeding ground for the great white shark. Now, I made 118 dive trips to the Farallon Islands. I saw great whites less than a dozen times. But when you see those guys, get your attention. Yeah. Well, I know the Farallons, it's a eating ground. I, w- I don't think they know if they're, it's a breeding ground yet. They don't even know where the white sharks breed. But that would be a concern, I would think, as a diver to be in the eating grounds of white sharks. When you're, now, when you're diving, it sounds like with uh, urchin divers, you p- pretty much go straight to the bottom. And you're, you're down there the entire time. And, and where did you see the sharks? Were they at more of the surface? Were they more down below, checking you out? What were your observations? Just about every time I ever saw one. Now, you have to keep in mind, we're busy. We've, we've got our head down, and we're working. We're not really looking around at, at pretty fishies and things like that. We're working hard, and we're trying to make a lot of money. And just about every time I ever saw a shark, uh, he had come up from behind, and the first thing I would see would be either his head or his pectoral fin. So he was already by me by the time I saw him. Wow. And your reaction? <laughs> Basically fear. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine an adrenaline. Oof. We would we would have all these uh, theories that we would come up with. You know, we would say, well, let's see, if we go up and pull the anchor and move the boat 300 yards, we'll be safe. Or we could say... We'll pee in our wetsuit because maybe <laughs> sharks don't like urine. Then we'll be safe. None of these theories seem to work. Uh-huh. Actually, that brings up a point. You talked about with your boat um, a process that you did for trying to discover new habitat called live boat surveying. And that's pretty much a boat moving forward and a diver being dragged behind. Was there any concern of 
looking like a marine mammal when you were doing this? That would well, be, we, to me, a little Well, the way learning. you're describing it is kind of we're trolling the diver along. The lifeboat is usually done when there's very little wind uh-huh. of a pretty calm day. So you've got one guy up on the boat who is a very experienced boat handler. Uh, so he's operating the throttle, and he's watching the hose. The other diver is in the water, and he's just swimming around, not necessarily being being pulled around by the boat. Now, periodically, he might say, okay, drag me over there. Mm -hmm. So you do get a little bit of that. But for the most part, the boat is just kind of floating around. Oh, that's good. Divers swimming around. Yeah, because that's one of the ways they uh, are known to uh, be attracted is by things floating near the surface. But I guess you're down below anyway. So you came up to the north coast of Mendocino, and um, you wrote some really neat natural history um, descriptions of some areas. And one area you talk about is the Blue Lagoon, and it sounds like this mysterious spot that's really hard to access and can you talk a little bit about that place of all the stories in my <coughs> book that's the one that, that people most ask me about is is the blue lagoon and it's a it's it's a, just a little slot a little nook in in the rocks that we found up north of uh, noyo harbor uh my my friend duag and i and uh it was just uh, i got it while found it while we were live boating uh, swam in and saw a field of urchins in there uh, we were able to squeak the boat in there. It was pretty dicey getting the boat into this little crack. But once we got the boat inside the lagoon, uh, we were invisible. The other boats couldn't couldn't see us and couldn't find us. So we, we worked for several months up at the Blue Lagoon uh, north of Noyo. And a lot of people to this day always ask me about the Blue Lagoon. Where is it? I go into a real description in the book telling about the caves that we found in there, the walls of urchins, the octopus, and all the neat stuff that was being held in the Blue Lagoon. Yeah, it sounds like an incredible place. I really enjoyed that part of the book of just really descriptive of this underwater place that's sort of somewhat protected. Our little underwater paradise. Yeah, well, if it's not Cordell Bank, it's it's got to be near shore. <laughs> um, so in in your experiences with um, diving at, in the near shore Mendocino Coast versus the Farallons, what were some differences that you noticed in the underwater habitat that was either good for urchin habitat or not so good for urchin habitat? Well, urchins are what they eat. And in, in the urchins eat the kelp and whatever nutri- other nutrients they can find. So on the Sonoma and Mendocino coast, we have, uh, we have kelp. We have the, the uh, macrocystis-type kelp, the bull kelp, the palm kelp. But it's not island it's not it's not the nutrients you get out of the islands and you don't have these swirling currents out there that the that the islands catch so the farallons are 25 miles offshore so besides the kelp and the lettuce and whatever else is on the bottom out there they're going to get all those uh waterborne nutrients as well so the urchins out there at the time are very high quality urchins wow how about some of the other observations besides urchins what what were some of the differences in the habitat like as far as other animals that you'd see well, fishes or of course a huge difference is water uh, clarity out there you're out in the ocean so you have uh, the opportunity to have some uh some great visibility, 20, 30, 40-foot visibility days. Wow. Uh, we saw uh, wolf eels out there, monkey-faced eels. Uh, we saw, of course, uh, Mr. GW out there. Uh, now, of course, not many guys go diving out there, and there are boats out there, so the bottom is littered with a lot of uh, junk out there, so we found a lot of uh, interesting sea treasure as well. Oh, what type of treasure did you find? Well, we found a, we found a ship, uh, a couple of ships that hit the islands uh, back around the turn of the century, and I once found a uh, 
about a 50 pound stainless steel Bruce anchor with 200 feet of chain and wow so we found some other treasure besides urchins out at the Farallons and what was the year what was the year you were out there at the Farallons started in 88 mm-hmm. though the Farallons through 92 uh-huh and how many other divers were out at the Farallons? I know there's one boat that's still going out there. There's a couple of guys that got out there before me that I know of. George Tomlinson and Jim Clayholt were out there before me. And then uh, when I went out there, uh, I dove by myself out there for a while. And then I got a couple other guys on the boat, uh, Terrell Cryer, uh, Doug Dirksey, and Ron Elliott. And Ron is the fellow you're talking about who's still out there. Yeah, sounds like a character. You Ron, write about him a little bit. Ron's a good guy. And these boats that are going out to the Farallons are coming out of Bodega Bay. Is that the closest uh, We dove point? the Farallons out of Bodega Bay, Sausalito, and Half Moon Bay. Mm-hmm. So um, after this um, period that you experienced seeing this change in the industry and more boats coming on and, and moved up to areas where there was virgin territory and you saw all these changes, what were some of the um, things that brought your urchin career to an end? What were some of the uh, key points that really made you decide it was time? Um, I had been in it for 20 years. Uh, I was getting older. Uh, We started diving down at San Clemente Island when uh, I got kind of tired of diving up here. And the urchins were pretty good quality at San Clemente Island. So we went down there. My family was up here. My kids were in school. I was gone a lot. The diving on the backside of Clemente is deep. I got uh, bent out there, so I got hurt. So an injury was was a big part of ending my career mm-hmm. around year 2000. You had a lot at stake at that point and didn't well, want to mess yeah. around too much. Well. So uh, as far as the fishery goes, is the urchin fishery still as viable and strong as it used to be? With, uh, with the size limits, with the reduction of divers, the urchin business is now a, a viable, dynamic fishery, leveled off to about 10 million pounds a year. It's not the 30 to 50 million pounds it was. It's not the cowboy days. It's not the gold rush days anymore. But it's a good business for a young guy willing to take a few risks and uh, and work hard. Are there any women in the sea urchin diving industry? A few, not many. Yeah, it's a rough schedule probably for... I think there's four, four or five. Wow. Any up here on the north coast or... Not that I know of. Down the Channel Islands. What do you think of when you see a sea urchin on the beach when... Now, if you go to the beach and you see an urchin, are there any memories that are triggered? Or There's lots of memories, <laughs> but really what I do now these days, I, I kind of travel up and down the coast, and I talk to a lot of different schools, museums, rotary clubs, environmental groups, and I, I kind of talk about the urchin fishery and about the urchin, and I try to encourage people to go to their local sushi bar and try some uni and, and, try and support your local sea urchin diver. Tom, what's the biggest change that you've seen in the urchin diving industry as your, in your time as a diver? Well, it would have to be the, the size limits. Uh, before there were no size limits, uh, I would go into an area and take, take all the urchins. I'd take them all. And, uh, and nowadays, the guys are wearing measuring devices. They're selective harvesting. They're taking maybe one out of every 20 urchins. So that's a huge change to the to the ecosystem out there is the size limits. And you see that as a positive thing for the, making this sustainable? Very beneficial. I think the size limits alone created what we have today as a sustainable sea urchin fishery. That's great. It seems with urchins, because they don't have an air bladder, 
um, that's an easy thing to measure and leave, whereas it's a, a little bit tougher for some of the fishes that uh, we have size limits on, but when you, they've already got them at the surface and their air bladder has expanded so much, you throw them back and it's a trash fit. It's a fish that's died anyway, and it's a big problem with, with some of the rockfish industries. But I understand with, with urchins, they're just going to sit there. So well, there's, We're fortunate with the urchins is that it's very selective. We only take the sea urchins. How about also from all this time that you spent underwater? I mean, you probably have hour, thousands of hours of underwater observations. What are some of the observations that you would enjoy seeing on a daily basis? I mean, there is long hours. It's cold water and you're pick, 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 pick. But what were some of the other highlights from just being underwater all that time? You know, when you spend that many hours, thousands of hours underwater, you always get to a point where, you know, a lot of times you have boredom. You're just saying, put the urchin in the bag, <laughs> put the urchin in the bag. And you think you've seen it all. And this would happen to me over and over again. I've seen everything there is to see underwater on this coast. And then, boom, you see something that just blows your mind that you've never seen before. Whether you're back in a cave and you see this glittering ray of sunlight coming down and, and just basking in this beautiful room of light or whatever it is, this spectacular uh, giant uh, electric ray that has a wingspan of five feet just hovering right in front of you. There's just so many things that you think you've seen it all and you never do. That's amazing. That's great. Well, since you and you have spent this time, what are some changes in the ecosystem as a whole, the ocean that you've seen and, and your time spent on the water, both surfing and urchin diving? Have you seen dramatic changes that you've been we've been hearing a lot about changes in the ocean, but what were your some of your observations? You know, I'm no scientist. I talk to a lot of environmental people and a lot of scientists these days and I talk to uh, a lot of people who tell me a doom and gloom, but I prefer to be an optimist. I think with the with the youngsters coming up today, we've got so many great uh, environmental groups and ocean foundations. We've got a lot of concerned people, and I have great hopes for the future of our oceans. That's wonderful. If there was one recommendation that you could give to listeners about their role in being good ocean stewards, what would that be? I guess it would be, unless you're harvesting commercially uh, or you have a license to take from the sea, look but don't touch. Look but don't touch. Excellent. Well, Tom, thanks so much for coming in today and talking about your experiences. I want to encourage listeners to pick up a copy of Blue Water Gold Rush um, at the bookstore. Is there areas that um, you know that it's available at, Tom, that you could let listeners know about? We sell quite a few direct sales, so they can just call up. We live in Sebastopol. I love signing books for people. 707-829-7784. I sign a book for you. You can buy them off the website, and they're in local bookstores as well. Excellent. And you've been doing some local appearances, too, talking about your book, too. I'm all over the state. It's so fun. You're having a good time. And wait, you said you're, there's a um, potential movie deal coming down I got the a line. call from a film producer about five months ago, and he said, look, I love this book. My writer loves it. Send me 15 more books and get to work on a screenplay. So, uh, and then brought me down and introduced me to a lot of people down there in Los Angeles. And that is so fun, meeting a lot of movie stars and writers and directors and producers. So we're working hard on the screenplay now. So keep your fingers crossed for the movie. Wow. Did you ever think when you hopped on that boat out to the Channel Islands you'd be preparing for a Hollywood film? Not in a million years. <laughs> All my old friends, I tell them, start doing your push-ups. You're playing yourself in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. 
Well, thanks so much, Tom. I really appreciate you coming in again and supporting the radio station by um, donating a book. And folks, if you have a chance to call in today, we do have a book available that Tom donated, and you could read Blue Water Gold Rush yourself. So thanks again. Happy to be here. Thanks, Jenny.